welcome to the 19th episode of the Football Media Podcast on the team of John O'Shea's platform. I'm John McKenzie and across the course of the new season, I'm going to be bringing you a weekly podcast that seeks to open up the often murky underworld of the football media. This week I'm speaking to Ryan Baldy, senior writer at Football Whispers and author of The Next Big Thing. In the course of our conversation, we discuss his experiences of working for Football Whispers, the ins and outs of writing a book, and his experiences of working within a number of different publishing models. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends. Subscribe, rate and review on iTunes in order to help us gain exposure. And if you're a social media person, follow us on Twitter at FootyMediaPod. We haven't sorted a guest for next week as of yet, but be assured that the podcast will happen. Before that, though, it's Ryan Baldy, Football Whispers and the process of book publishing. Enjoy. I'm joined today by Ryan Baldi, senior writer at Football Whispers and author of The Next Big Thing. Ryan, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks, John. How are you? Yeah, I'm great, thanks. On this podcast, the first question is always contextual, giving the guests a chance to sort of situate themselves within the football media. So tell us a bit about how you ended up in the football media and what it is that you do. Uh, yeah, ended up is a good way of, of looking at it, I think. Kind of stumbled into, um, yeah, I have no kind of formal background or training in football writing or journalism or anything like that I um, for years and years bounced around many jobs that I didn't like Um, I started blogging about football just as a hobby um, a few years ago now uh, just blogging mostly about European football things that that, that took my interest Um, gradually I started to build up a little bit of a portfolio by having work featured um, on some on some websites and then um, a few years back um, I was um, made redundant from the job that I was working in and my incredible supportive uh, fiance um, said why not take the time to sort of think about what you want to do and um, pursue whatever direction you you come down on rather than just jumping straight back into another sales job um, that you're not going to enjoy and you'll you know be looking for something better within within a year's time so um, I decided to pour my efforts into a career as a football writer um, I intended to go down a very traditional route or as traditional as possible as as, as a guy in, I think, would have been in my late 20s at the time. So I was going to do an NCTJ, um, try and get work experience with a local newspaper and, and build it up that way. But um, And I was going to support that through freelance writing. Um, but the, the freelance stuff kind of just snowballed to the point where um, within three months or so, it, I was earning enough to make a full-time living off it. So I just sort of thought I'd ride that out as long as I could and see where that took me instead rather than go down a more formal route. And um, yeah, however many years later it is now, I'm, I'm still <laughs> still following that path now. I'm full-time writer with, with Football Whispers, who, were, who became one of my biggest freelance clients at the time and took me on full-time a couple of years ago and uh yeah still kind of still winging it really let's talk a little bit about the the route you took then the fact that you didn't go down the traditional routes do you think that's changed the way that you see journalism and the way that you do journalism do you think you would have ended up doing things differently had you gone through the nctj course yeah i I probably would have um and if anything it's kind of made me a little bit more suspicious of the industry than i would have been otherwise um because if a mug like me can kind of wrangle his way in the back door then any old mug can do it too so um, it's kind of <laughs> made me aware that uh, i think the great thing about about the internet and online football co- coverage football journalism is that it's opened so many doors as many as it's closed in the print industry it's opened tenfold a hundredfold um online um but it also means that 
you know, the, the dearth of writers is there's not always a um, a great deal of quality around, so you have to kind of um, have to have to seek that out and try and be aware of um, of the work you're doing and try and please yourself in, in some ways and not get not fall into some of the traps that um, I think you see a lot of the the younger or the the newer writers fall down in order to kind of gain exposure and stuff. Um, so yeah, it's kind of you have to. I, I guess I have um, coming up in the industry the way I did. Yeah, it's given me an appreciation of, of of how lucky I was for things to kind of happen so quickly for me and for me to be able to do this as a living. It's you know pretty much my dream job, but um, it also I, I'm, I'm very aware of my own kind of shortcomings and my own the the gaps in my knowledge when it comes to the industry and and um, the intricacies of it. So um, it just makes me appreciate that there are probably a lot of other people too uh, sort of on a wing and a prayer with this uh, with this gig too. Let's talk a little bit about Football Whispers then. I've had a lot of different online outlets on on the Football Media Podcast, but we've never had anyone from Football Whispers. So you are a senior writer there. Tell us a little bit about what that entails. With Football Whispers, we do a lot of work that people don't we don't people don't see. Um, I don't know how much of a peek behind the curtain I'm supposed to be giving, um, <laughs> how much I'm allowed to give, um, but our kind of business model is based largely around um, providing content for partners as well as for our own website. So um, in recognition that um, advertising revenue from, from websites that are fairly new in the game is a difficult thing to build up and probably wouldn't keep the lights on for very long if we pursued that as our sole route of income. Um, the decision was made that we will do things like provide content for other websites for other companies um and we also we build products we have a whole product team who um develop products based around producing automated graphics and um using stats in different ways producing different visuals and things like that that can then be sold to clients so there's i think there's a lot more to football whispers than people might realize it's it's a lot more than just the the website um editorially um we've got a managing editor He's got two deputies. Then there are myself and Sam McGuire, the two senior writers below that. We have two more writers in, in um, Mark and, um, and Matt. And then we have two full-time social media guys too. So that's, that's quite a sizable um, full-time staff um, on the editorial team there. But that's because we serve quite a few different masters that, that people might not realize. So, yeah, we're kind of uh, – things are quite healthy Um and yeah, there's, there's kind of a lot more than meets the eye to what we're doing and what, what we plan to do in the future, I think. What does your working week look like then? I work from home. I have a little office at the back of the house in Worcester. Um, each week it can vary uh, what sort of department we're working on. As I mentioned, there are a few different clients that we serve. Um, so some, some weeks I'll be working exclusively for our own website. Um, and those are the weeks when we have a lot more freedom with the kind of content we produce and the kind of features we can dig into. That's where... I do the kind of things that, that, that keep me more interested in, in, in many ways and that kind of in, would interest me. Um, some weeks I'll be working exclusively on partner stuff where it's a little bit more sort of dictated to. They, they have ideas about the, the type of coverage they want, so we have to provide that for them. Um, but all the while trying to kind of put our own spin on it. Um, we try to uh, be quite forward-thinking in our use of, of stats and things like that and different graphics and different tools that we use um, to kind of put our own stamp on the content we provide for ourselves and for other people so even when i'm on and say we do a lot of work with um there's a betting company we work for and we also have um the international champions cup we provide content for them too um so it can be um 
quite a wide variety of, of different sorts of articles we're producing, but we always try and kind of make them our own, which is which keeps it interesting. Um, so yeah, for, for my week, we'll have um, a, a schedule laid out day by day, where whereupon um, just work through a work stack, basically producing producing articles. Um, when it is a week where I'm serving footballwhispers.com, um, I work closer with with the editor of that site, Adam, and we come up with content plan content ideas and and then yeah just dig into different stories and what's quite cool also is that the different writers on the team all have quite unique styles so we've got mark thompson who's a really good kind of um analytics guy who's great with stats and things like that um myself i'm more um i have more of like a narrative style i prefer telling stories and and, uh, looking at historical things or um doing kind of more op-ed sort of pieces um less sort of interested in the stats and the tactics side of things but will occasionally dip my toe in, into those two and then we've got guys like sam mcguire who's really really hot on the tactics stuff too so it's quite it's it's good to be able to like bounce ideas off off the team when we've got such a wide skill set and uh, to come up with things that keep us interested if they keep us interested and hopefully they'll keep other people interested too um so yeah there's no great sort of um recipe for for what we do or for how we build our, our, our weekly workload. It's just kind of come up with it um, on the week that we're working, working through it and um, yeah, carry on and get as much knocked out as we can and, and see if we can kind of make a little bit of a ripple in this, in this uh, saturated industry that we're in. So you're working mainly Monday, Friday, nine to five, or do you have to reflect the, the football schedule at all? Yeah, it's mostly Monday to Friday, but there are weekends and nights too. The, the uh, advantage of having a fairly deep, staff is that the the weekend shifts don't come around too often so yeah it's, it's quite um it's quite conducive to to family life and things like that too which is very very nice very fortunate um because i know in uh, in the football media that's not always the case you've freelanced other places as well how would you compare working for other places with working for football whispers presumably that's that's quite different for you how do those differences manifest themselves well i always try to be aware of the the sort of house style of the the websites i'm writing for so it can be a matter of sort of changing the way you write sometimes um which i quite enjoy the challenge of i know there are a lot of guys because we we use freelancers too um their copy will be their copy regardless of what site they're writing for. You'll have to go in and amend it and make it fit what you're what you're trying to do. Um, but I quite like the challenge of looking at, at what um, what a specific site you're aiming to do, and like more specifically their, their style guide and things like that, and uh, trying to adhere to that and test myself in those ways. Um, I think it's also a different kind of feeling when you submit an article um, for a freelance client because. It won't, once it's gone, it's gone. It's in their control. Um, if I do something for Football Whispers and I spot an error in it, or if there's a line I'm not quite happy with, or something that turns out to you know something that can change quite quickly, I can go in and edit it and um, freshen it up. That's um, that's not doable with a lot of freelance clients because we don't have that same kind of relationship um, and we don't have the same kind of access to the systems they use and stuff. So it's a bit different in terms of the the practicalities of of editing and. Um, trying to maybe be that little bit more meticulous with with what you're doing to make sure it's right first time um but yeah i haven't done a whole lot of freelance work over the last year or two um i've mainly stuck to my 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 day job with football whispers and uh it's been easier (laughs) i don't miss having to chase up invoices and things like that for the um thinking back to the the full-time freelance days and when it's so much easier knowing when uh when your paycheck's coming in 
each month rather than having to, to chase a load of different people and have drips of money coming at different times of the month. Um, so if, if you're comparing the two sort of full-time lifestyles of a freelancer uh, against a, a staff writer, they're really different worlds. Um, they each have their advantage. I, I like the, the kind of freedom of being able to, if you know, if you want a day off when you're freelancing, you can just take the day or you can, if you've, if you don't want to get up and start early, you can start at midday and work later or you have that kind of freedom with your, with your schedule. But, at the same time like i said the downsides are there too there's no regular income there's no set payday you can't always guarantee that the person who says they're going to pay you are actually going to pay you i'm sure any of us who've freelanced for a while have been burned a few times um so yeah it's 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 an interesting one um i think on the balance of things it's it's a lot easier and a lot more pleasant having that security of a of a full-time job and i know how lucky i am to have one because um even though a lot of people are making their way um, as a football writer, not too many get offered you know, jobs with a good, a decent income on on staff. So yeah, I'm quite uh, quite very grateful for that. Really, presumably the reason why you've been dropping out on the freelance side of things is because you've been working on a book. Yeah, that that and uh, because uh, my my baby son arrived uh, seven <laughs> months ago. So uh, so you've had two babies then recently. Those two babies, yeah, took up all of my <laughs> free time pretty much, and yeah, I'm just starting to get some of it back now that the book's finished off. So the next big thing off at the printers right now, available for pre-order. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, um, it's uh, kind of an examination of all the different ways a young footballer's development can be thrown off track. Is basically what I set out to do. And um, I've tried to do that through telling the stories of 15 different players who were all at the outset of their career tipped to to reach the very top they're all kind of uh, quote-unquote wonderkids to use the, the football manager parlance um and for whatever reason things didn't quite work out for them um there will be some players who are featured who will be well known to to uh, the wider football audience there will be others who whose name might ring a bell but um you might might not sort of fully appreciate what happened to them um there might be that little bit of curiosity there but and i think for a lot of players who um who are featured um, there'll be some misconceptions I think people either think well maybe they weren't quite good enough after all or maybe they had a bad attitude or, or something like that so I just wanted to, to try and speak to these people um, so all, all of the, the chapters the 15 different stories that I tell are all based um, around interviews that I've done with these players and I've spoke to um, coaches that they've worked with um, teammates um, journalists who covered their careers to get a really to try and get a really well-rounded view of their stories and to drill into the the reasons why things didn't quite go their way. Um, and it's been really interesting doing that and looking at the, the many different ways that, that, that that can happen. Um, and, and the ways that maybe people don't often understand or understand fully. Um, I think most would, would accept that injuries are a kind of fact of life in a football's career and that quite easily, um, mean that, uh, potential goes unfulfilled, but within the sort of sphere of injuries, there are so many, different ways that that can happen too um so for instance uh, one of the people i spoke to was matt murray the former wolves goalkeeper um he had just the worst luck with injuries throughout his career he retired at 29 but from sort of 17 18 when he had his first injuries it was just constant battles but every injury was kind of it was severe but not quite severe enough to end it there and then so there was always that carrot at, at, at the end of the road for him to keep keep fighting back to fitness and then his luck would go against him again and he'd be injured and that, that went on for a decade pretty much for him 
Um, whereas there's uh, a guy called Lionel Morgan who I who I interviewed, who's one of the chapters. He was a, a young England uh, youth winger uh, when he played for Wimbledon in the early two thousands. Um, like the crux of his story is that he was about to move to Spurs um, around the time that Newcastle signed Jermaine Genus from uh, Nottingham Forest. He was a contemporary and England teammate of Genus, um, and Spurs were going to sign him, um, but he failed a medical and he had to retire at twenty one because of injuries. So you've got the kind of two very different stories there within within the kind of spectrum of an injury end in a career. One guy who who told me at nineteen he knew his. His body wasn't going to give him a career, and by 2021, he was completely out of the game and and, and done with football. Um, whereas Matt Murray had a decade or more playing for you know playing at a very good level, um, being tipped for to be an England goalkeeper and things like that, but um, constantly having to battle with those setbacks. Um, so, so yeah, <laughs> a long to, to cut a very very long story short here. Um, just I, I try to dig into all the different little things that can go wrong. Try to with some guys try to pinpoint. Um, whether there was kind of a moment that that, that set in action a butterfly effect um, that that sort of uh, when when one one setback begets begets another and another and it and it leads to a whole downward spiral um, and just look at all these different stories to to if nothing else to kind of put across the human side of these people who who were um, kind of commodities that's the way the football business is it is a business these are guys who. Uh, the riches are there for them, but they also can be bought and sold at the, at the, the drop of a hat. So to kind of humanize these people too and to, and to get into the, the psychological aspect of what they went through and the personal and how it affected them and their families and their lives thereafter. Um, so yeah, just lots of different ways in which a young footballer's career can, can be knocked off track and how that can happen and what becomes of them when it does happen. Um, so quite a broad spectrum of things that I've dug into. Sounds really, really, really interesting. I'm looking forward to reading it. In terms of the the origins of the book, could you talk to us maybe what prompted you to write the, uh, a book in the first place and then uh, why write the book that you ended up writing in, in the second place? How did those two processes come about? Yeah, that's that's one I've been trying to remember myself. I'm not sure exactly <laughs> how, how the idea began. Um, I think I've always been quite, since I started writing about football, back when I was just first blogging as a as a side project. I've always been quite ambitious in what I've wanted to do. Um, um, as soon as it became my living, then it was on to the next thing. It was to make, you know, to, to, to grow my sort of um, my freelance base, to become a full-time writer somewhere. And then always part of the plan or part of the aspiration was to, to write a book. I've always been a, a very keen reader and I, I love football books. Um, I spend most of my free time reading football books so to to have one of my own on my bookshelf um even if nobody else reads it was something that i've always found very cool so something i wanted to do and um the idea of the book yeah i don't remember exactly why or how i thought of it i do remember um when i first kind of verbalized it to someone else and that was when um i was on holiday with my with my partner we were in in barcelona and i i uh, told her that i had this idea and i wanted to work on it and she was very supportive, so that obviously meant a lot. And um, you know, she believed that I could I could bring it to life, and then I pursued it from there. Um, and I think one of the, the the main reasons that I chose the subject that I did, or one of the reasons that I pursued it so hard, because I think most of us um, who do this will at some point have different ideas that we think, oh, that could be a book, or that could be this, or that could be that. But the reason that this one stuck, I think, is because I felt 
capable of doing it more than than some of the other things that might have been kicking around at that time um, with where I was in my career and my writing. I felt like 15 sort of self-contained stories um, would be um, a kind of easier task to take on than to tell a single narrative or, you know, from go from one point A to point B across 80, 90, 100,000 words. Um, so I was kind of building myself up, really start with something where I can com- compartmentalize each piece and, and, and work on work on each chapter as a whole, um, which is the way, I've, way I tackled it. Um, but of course, there's the overall thread that runs through the whole book as the theme. Um, but to be able to, to, to treat each one as, um, as kind of a separate case study was something that appealed to me and something I thought that um, was, was kind of a challenge I was very ready for at that time. And um, yeah, that's why that one kind of appealed to me, I think. In terms of the fact that the the book is is based around looking at guys who who are on the periphery but obviously had the the potential to make a full time career of football, let's talk a little bit about access because obviously access is ever being stifled within football media. Did this function as your decision when you wrote the book? This notion of of access, the ease with which you can find access with with these players who aren't quite uh, in the limelight so much as the sort of marquee players that you might expect. And do you have any thoughts on the the impact of this this slow stifling of access within football? Yeah, what, for sure, it definitely did. I think um, a lot of the guys who I spoke to um, played for very big clubs. Um, there are four Man United players in there. There's a Liverpool player. There's a guy who's at Inter Milan. There's a, uh, two guys who play for Ajax. So uh, Spurs. Um, yeah, so lots of really big clubs uh, and players who at, at one point or another would have been part of that machine, um, that sort of press machine and where there's a million gatekeepers to get through before you can speak to anybody. But because they've fallen out of the game, they're on their own now and um, a lot of them are, are quite willing to talk and happy to, to, to tell their story. Um, I had a list of maybe 50 or so players who sort of fit the bill for what I was trying to do. So the 15 who I ended up speaking to were those who were who were willing to, to, to take the time to meet with me and to, and to tell me their story. It's not intended to be presented in any way as a kind of definitive list of, of, um, of talented young players who didn't quite make it. There are hundreds more stories um, that could have been told. These are just the guys who were kind enough to speak to me, give me their time, and um, I tried to pick guys who had kind of a different different take on it, a different angle. Um, so those are the 15 that, that I have, but that, yeah, like I said, there were so many more. And then getting access to them, yeah, was, wasn't always easy. There were a few who um, were more difficult than others. There were a few who I, I never managed to get anywhere near uh, getting in touch with and um, had to kind of give up on them and, and move on to the next one because they're still quite, uh, maybe not ready to tell their stories and not willing to speak about it have kind of closed that, that part of their life off and have moved on to something new and don't really want to reflect on it um, so that's that was the battle with access on this one more than um, fighting through clubs who are protective of their players or agents or anything like that um, the guys who I did spoke, speak to mostly were very open and, and um, well they were, they were all very open all very um, lucid and of all kind of um battled their demons and, and come out the other side stronger for it um so they were quite happy to, to share their story but like i said there there was a list of at least 50 so there were other guys there who who weren't ready who weren't who weren't putting themselves forward and making themselves available so even though it's probably a lot easier than if i was doing this with with 15 players who are currently currently at all these big clubs then you know i wouldn't have had a book there there would, there would have just been no chance of me getting that access clubs are just too protective now 
Um, unless you're one of the big names, unless you're a Henry Rinter or something like that, you're just not going to get that kind of access. Um, and more often than not, I think clubs are going to steer um, those kind of stories towards their in-house media, um, which is another thing that I guess uh, is along the same lines with this subject where, where access is becoming more and more difficult for, for people to get. Um, I think it's about kind of picking and choosing your subjects. Um, there are still... Even if you're not speaking to, um, I don't know, Cristiano Ronaldo, you can still, it doesn't mean that somebody of a, of a lower profile has a less interesting story to tell. So I guess um, the media, uh, writers, and if you're producing video content, whatever it is you do, it's just about being a little little bit more clever about how you find these stories and how you pursue them. Um, so there's still, I think you'll still be able to get access to tell great stories and speak to really interesting people. It just might not be the, the headline guys that, that that you're hoping for that maybe 30 years ago, if you're on the, on a news desk somewhere, you might have the, the phone number of X star player on X huge club. Um, those days, I think, unless you are one of the very, very top line journalists on a national newspaper, those days I think are pretty much gone. Yeah, let's talk a bit, little bit about the process of writing the book. So you've decided that you're going to write chapter by chapter on on these individuals. So that sort of gives you it gives you a sort of in, implicit structure and a little bit of a uh, an essay based pr- approach to the writing. So I guess it feels a bit more manageable that way. In terms of the actual structuring itself, is there anything that is there any sort of underlying structure that goes through the whole thing, or is it is it just did the players just come up as and when? So how did the structuring go? And then let's talk a, a little bit after that about the the writing of the thing. How long did it take? What was your sort of practice for writing did you get into a routine or was it again was it sort of as and when you could fit it in with time yeah so the, the structure was kind of one i i laid out from the start like i said as much because it was kind of um right up until it was finished it was kind of had this sort of work in progress feel where i was still trying to um secure the interviews like i didn't have the 15 players on board from the outset um it was a drip feed of that and then when i did even have all those interviews completed i was still trying to find um, teammates or former managers or coaches or, or journalists who, who could speak um, about these players' careers. So um, I think it helped that I could compartmentalise each one. And when I had enough to go with, with one chapter, I could get on with it while continuing to work on getting the, the access and the interviews that I needed for the others. So I think that really helped. Um, so, yeah, they're all kind of self-contained stories. Um, but with, with the overall thread of looking at um, each one kind of examines a different way that a young footballer's career can be thrown off track. So that's kind of the overall theme. I would hope that from each each chapter you come away understanding a bit more about a different way that that can happen. Um, so yeah, it was it was so it's fifteen chapters laid out, introduction one end, an epilogue at the other, and then you just work your way through it. It's kind of in chronological order too, the way I've laid it out. So um, with the the oldest player who was around. Um, the longest time ago at the beginning right through to a guy who's still only 24 and still trying to kind of fight his way back to uh, where he was hoping he would be by this point in his career um, so that's the, the structure I followed um, so what was the second part of the question again yeah the second part is simply about the actual process of it the, the, the sort of logistics did you have did you have a specific time frame in which you you were working did you have a, a weekly uh, schedule that you did and how long did it take to, to get the whole thing written up right yeah um the the initial time frame I had, I was hoping to get it all polished off in time for my son being born. <laughs> he he arrived in early June last year, um, by which point I'd been working on the book, I think, by around... Yeah, it, it pretty much coincided exactly with his uh, 
uh, with, with my partner being pregnant. So it was sort of nine or 10 months before he came along was when I began work on the book. Um, and I was hoping to get it done. I, I knew it was always kind of optimistic and yeah, it didn't end up being anywhere near that kind of, that kind of time scale. Um, so yeah, uh, the way it worked out was that for the first maybe four months or so, um, four or five months were spent sort of really chasing down interviews hard uh, and working on those and uh, trying to get the supplementary interviews to I think by sort of January time February time uh, last year I still only had really one chapter written which was the one on Ben Thornley the former Man United class 92 winger um, that was the one that I used uh, for pitching to publishers um, as part of my proposal um, it's the, it's the longest one in the book too it's, it's around 10,000 words so it was a good chunk of writing that I got done um, early doors to kind of have that to pitch around. But yeah, most of the rest of that time was spent, like I said, getting these interviews and getting people tied down traveling around um, and uh, yeah, speaking to all the different players. And then from that point, once they got that, all the interviews done, um, I was kind of chipping away at the chapters from that point and doing as much as I could. But then there came a point where I had to get serious about actually writing this thing. And yeah, it was kind of because um, I have my my day with football whispers. I don't have the luxury of um, uh, like maybe like a freelancer might, where where you can spend half a day on the book and half a day on on your paid work. Um, it was all sort of late night sort of writing. So um, when my partner's gone to bed, kind of thing, spending a few hours on it each night. It was very 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 tiring, kind of thing that you can't really do for too long. Um, and you can only really do what I, would, I suspect if there's that, that, that end goal in sight of having a finished piece of work um, I wouldn't like to do it indefinitely because um, it, it's, it's a pretty draining process um, but it, yeah it became very necessary uh, at the end to, to, to get it done I think I got it finished um, well around yeah it was about October so I was aiming for the end of May uh, this in 2018 and it was uh, it was October by the time we got it finished and submitted to publisher. Um, then of course it comes back with edits and things like that, and um, the, the final edit and proofing went off just a couple of weeks ago. Um, so yeah, it's been a, it's been a long process. It's been I guess uh, a year and a half or so. Yeah, around about a year and a half. Um, yeah, I think I was I think I've learned a lot from it too. A lot of lessons. Um, a lot about um, how and when to to kind of to pitch your idea to publishers and, and how to approach that. I would do a lot of things differently now, um, but also how to manage your time, um, how to manage your own expectations. I think um, knowing more about the actual process now, I'd, I wouldn't have given myself that crazy deadline of uh, <laughs> trying to get it finished so soon. So yeah, a lot of lessons learned, but it was, it was a really enjoyable process too. I'm itching to, to get started on my next one. So I've already kind of, started putting the feelers out for a few things that are working on i just want to get back to it because it's such a an enriching and and a rewarding process that yeah i definitely recommend it um for any aspiring writer out there let's talk a little bit about the publishing side of things because you you actually changed your plans with the publishers you right you began with a plan to use unbound if that's is that right that's it yeah so tell us a little bit about unbound and your experience of that and then we'll move on to talk about why you moved over yeah so um my plan was always to, to, to get a conventional book deal um, if I could. Um, I, I pitched around a lot of different places. Uh, I met with an agent and stuff and got some really good advice. Um, but then I decided to go down the route of, of signing with Unbound. They were really, really keen to take my book on. Um, they use a, a crowdfunding model. Um, so they um, 
they give you a a target for for crowdfunding to cover the cost of producing the book and marketing it and uh, all the things that go along with that and then you work towards um reaching that target through crowdfunding so you do things like sell pre-orders of the book nobody was ever pledging money without getting something in return so there are different pledge levels with different rewards and things like that um so yeah they set you up with a page on their website um you can you make a video to promote the book and then you kind of you kind of you're off there trying to trying to make as much noise as you can and and get people to pledge um it wasn't something i was entirely comfortable with um yeah like like i said we'll come on to why why i kind of ended it with them and went elsewhere but um one of the main lessons that I took away from the whole sort of pitching process was just to just give it a bit more time. These things can take a long time to, to, um, to get any kind of traction. Uh, you get a, you get a lot of rejections. You're going to get so many more rejections than any kind of interest. Um, and I think I just got, I got ants in my pants a little bit and got a bit, so I was worried that it wasn't going to happen. So it's like, quick, let's, um, you know, go with the ones who are interested even if it's not quite ideal so i signed with unbound and they were great they're really helpful it's it's a great way of doing things if um if other avenues are closed off to you um their process they have two different funding levels um so for some books they have like i think it varies from from book to book depending on what type of book you produce and, and the costs involved with it but they have a higher funding level and then like a lower one with the higher one you get more um more sort of marketing backing, I think, is 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 what it amounted to. Um, you get the um, distribution of a major publisher, um, whereas the lower funding one, your book comes out in paperback format and an ebook, uh, and it goes on Amazon pretty much. But there's nothing really, no promotion behind it, no, um, yeah, not a lot of of marketing and promotion behind it. I think so. Once it's out, it's kind of out, and you, you have to publicize it all yourself. So. They put me on the higher one. Um, they were quite confident that uh, this project was would have enough pull to to reach the higher target. Um, but what I found very difficult was that I was never really comfortable doing the whole thing of asking people to pledge their money for my little project. Um, so that's probably a kind of personality thing on me. Maybe people who are a little more outgoing, a little bit more, I don't know what the word might be, but... Uh, yeah, it didn't quite sit well with me um, to to go around asking for the pledges and stuff. Um, and you kind of have to put you put yourself out there and do it. You just have to crack on with it. And um, it's difficult too that when you're still working on the book, when you're still going through the process of writing it, to actually be promoting it at the same time. Um, which is kind of it's not how it would work with a with a conventional deal. You you promote it once it's done and once it's out and once it's ready to be bought. But with this one, you kind of do all your promotion at the front end, trying to get people to. To, to to pledge and to buy pre-orders of it so i found it an even more difficult sort of balance in my time um between campaigning and between actually writing the thing so that was less than ideal too so uh yeah there's it's a difficult one um i think it's it's it suits some people better than others and for me it was one that um wasn't really going to work for me in the end um but i definitely wouldn't wouldn't want to put anyone off trying going down that route um just just really think it through before you do is what i'd say so in terms of then moving across to your new publisher which is pitch publishing right yeah that's it how did that process work and 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 how you found your experience of working with the publisher being compared to unbound so what happened was um i'd already pitched my idea to pitch publishing um sent them my proposal 
And it would have been within a few days of me signing with Unbound, they came back and offered me a deal. <laughs> so it was just rotten luck with timing there because otherwise I, I would have gone with them throughout. Um, so yeah, even though I had to say, I'm sorry, I've, I've already signed with somebody else. They said, well, well, keep, keep us informed. Let us know how you get on. Um, we'd still be interested to take it if things don't work out. So I did, I put all my energy and my efforts into the Unbound thing, but then, um, when when my son came along in June, um, I found myself really without the time to to publicise a crowdfunding campaign. Um, I was at about a third of targets, so there was still a long way to go, um, and I was still trying to write write it too. And the, because I wasn't able to put the, the same kind of time into the crowdfunding efforts, um, the pledges started to peter out a little bit. So um, I approached Unbound and said. Um, maybe it's time to kind of throw in a towel on this one and they were great about it they said yeah that's fine you know we're not gonna we're not gonna sort of tie you down all the the rights revert back to the author once once the deal is broken they were they were very very helpful and, and everybody who pledged um was able to claim a full refund so i felt i felt better about that too knowing that people will be able to get their money back and hopefully i don't lost too much trust or anything um, and would still be interested in, in, in the project just uh, now coming out with somebody else so um, I went back to pitch and um, yeah they were still interested which is great um, signed me up straight away and then things um, started to, to to really started to, to ramp up and started moving forward I think they were, they were a lot more hands on than, than Unbound where I think understandably so too because I guess uh, with Unbound they don't really know whether they've got a book until you either reach a funding target or are very close to doing so. So I guess they can't commit too much time to someone who isn't quite there yet. Whereas Pitch, once they've signed you, you're on board and it's happening. So they can afford to invest that time in you. Um, so yeah, got a lot more guidance from them. Um, got some sort of stricter deadlines and things like that. And uh, yeah, it's, it all moved quite quickly from that point on really. Um, I think one of the, the things that, that that meant that pitch was still so attracted to the idea of, of my book was that it was nearly finished so there was a quick turnaround time for it in terms of them receiving the manuscript and being able to get on with editing it and things like that so once i signed with them i think it was maybe four weeks i finished it all and was able to move on to the next stage of the process which was really cool too to learn about um the actual realities of bringing a book to life aside from just writing a word document um that seems to go on forever so yeah that was really cool too <laughs> How long was the book in the end, word-wise? Around 90,000 words. Well, okay, so it's, it's a fairly hefty piece of work then. Yeah, it's, it's come out, I think, with, with the typeface, it's about 250 pages. Um, but yeah, it, it could have been longer if with, a, with a bigger typeface. Okay, it's just the way they work it. And it will come out as a paperback, will it? Yeah, it's coming out as a paperback, yeah. It'll be out on the, the 10th of May. It's available for pre-order, presumably through Amazon. It is, yeah, it's on Amazon. Yeah, you can pre-order it now, uh, Twelve ninety nine. Um the link to it is on my is on my Twitter. It's my pinned tweet. You can go and uh, check it out if you want us to have a look. Read the uh, read the blurb on it and see what you think. See whether you think it's something that would interest you. And uh, yeah, it'd be it'd be great if anybody did want to want to go and pre order now. That'd be that'd be lovely. In terms of the aftermath of of the book writing, then the question I always find interesting to ask the authors is, especially with their first book, is what would you do differently now if you were if you were to write the book? Or I guess the question should be, what will you, what are you going to do differently about the next book you write? Um, the next book I write, I'm intending to be uh, quite different um, anyway. Uh, like I mentioned, the process and the idea of having 15 self-contained chapters appealed to me at the time. That was something that I found really, 
really fun and interesting to do. Uh, I think I'll challenge myself by doing things, mixing things up a little bit maybe next time. Um, but most of the lessons I learned were around the kind of, I guess what you might call the business side of it, of, of dealing with publishers and how to, how to pitch your idea and how to, uh, construct a proposal and, and just the time scales. That was the biggest thing I learned. The time scales be just, you've got to be patient, which is something that I'm not always, always great with when it comes to like career things. I kind of want, I want to move on to the next step and I want to do it now. And, and that was something I've learned. You just, there's, there's no way of speeding this through. You can't force people to be interested in your book. It's a very, very difficult, um, arena to break into. As I was told several times, you know, again, getting football books published isn't, isn't an easy thing to do. Um, so, you know, I've done it. Um, I've come away definitely richer for the experience in so many ways, if not uh, in terms of my bank account <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and then you've, you've mentioned it a little bit, but what sort of, what sort of specific advice would you give to people hoping to write a book? Be patient then for sure. Um, get advice on your proposal. I was very, very lucky to be able to uh, spend some time with, with uh, an agent who's worked with some incredible authors um, who specializes in, sports and football books and was able to offer some really good advice and to give great feedback on my proposal um so yeah definitely seek advice from people who've, who've been there and done it before um have people look over your proposal maybe before you send it anywhere um and then when you when you have put it out there um just be prepared to wait it, it can take a long time before you get any responses most of them are going to be no's um but just you know bide your time and see what comes back before kind of deciding what to do next um, is what I would say for sure. The last question on the podcast is always about the future. So how would you answer the question? How do you see the future of football media and how do you see yourself fitting within it? I would hope that I do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That'd be my only hope, I guess. Uh, But no, I think it's it's moving in some interesting ways. I I like the way that um, there's becoming more and more space for more esoteric sort of journalism and reporting and and coverage. Um, There are some great, great sites doing sort of tactics only work. There are some great places doing analytics. And I think, I think it's really, really good and really healthy that these, these websites and these writers exist and um, they're available to us all to kind of learn about different ways of looking at football. Um, So I think that's great. I think I would hope that that continues and continues to evolve. Um, but I also do hope that the the more traditional style of doing things um, survives too. I know it's it's been difficult for a lot of publications. Um, there have been a lot of changes. I've had to embrace a lot of different ways of uh, of creating revenue. Um, but there's something about old school reporting that I still really like. Um, I, I love reading match reports and stuff still too. I don't know if if many people still do, but um, I definitely do, and I hope that that things like that continue and. Um, continue to retain their place even if even if they have to deal with slightly different realities these days um yeah so i i, I don't know where it's going um i like where it is i think it's in, in a really healthy spot i think there are some incredible football writers out there at the moment i think we're in a, a kind of golden age of football writing in a lot of ways um and long may it continue well, it's been a real pleasure for me to to talk to you how can my listeners find you online was the best place for them to head you can go and find me on twitter i'm at ryan bell the fw FW for Football Whispers. Yeah, you can find me there. Well, thank you so much for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Football Media Podcast with me, John McKenzie. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. 
We'll be back next week with another fascinating guest from the football media. But until then, have a good week. Goodbye.